Hi, this is Sarah from Vancouver, British Columbia. Jed Bartlett is my president, is a Chipperish media production, and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support Chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is America making an arms deal with an evil regime. But that's probably happening. Oh God, that's probably happening. But we're not going to think about that right now because for this hour... Jed Bartlett is our president. This week's episode is The Women of Kumar, the ninth episode of season three. And here to talk with me about it is my special guest, Sharice Laprie. Dr. Laprie investigates the relationship between media and identity to understand how media affect the way we think about ourselves and others and how we use media to construct and reaffirm positive identities. I had the great cosmic privilege of teaching after Dr. Laprie for the first few semesters that I was in Newhouse, and I was always early, so I would sneak into the back of her class as it was ending and catch the last little bits, and I was always astounded and impressed by the content. So I made it a point to have drinks with her, and that was that. Charisse Laprie has one of the most perceptive and innovative minds I've ever seen up close, and I'm so excited she could join me here today. Welcome, Dr. Laprie. Hello, thank you so much for having me. That's that's the sweetest introduction. Make me blush. Oh, no, I was always because I would always come in early because I'm very paranoid about being on time for everything. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. your class would run over and I would hear the stuff that you had to say. And I was like, I got to hang with this chick. She's awesome. So <laughs> and thus you. a friendship was born. <laughs> yeah, now we get to hang virtually. I know. It's it's so cool. Yeah. All right. So um, my question for you this week is, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about race and gender representation in media, I'm wondering what your favorite TV show is in regard to good, positive re- representation. Um, okay. So are we talking about current TV or past TV or anything at all? This is an open what, question. Whatever you want to talk about. Okay. Okay. So I've got a couple right now. Mm-hmm. Um I think, so there's the shows I watch and the shows I don't watch. I think one of the mm-hmm. shows that's doing it really, really well is Blackish. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they, yeah, I love that show. Yeah, they're inviting the viewer into conversations that have been isolated within a single sub- subculture mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think the way they do that and the way they bring um, conversations about race and racial representation to the fore is really exciting Having said that, I don't generally watch the show because it feels like work. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you teach race and gender, you see these episodes, you're like, oh, I see. I like how they did that. But I'm not really learning anything. And right. I often just feel like I'm watching something to prepare for lecture tomorrow. Sure. Which mm-hmm. is probably one of the highest compliments I can give. Right. <laughs> so I have to admit that I think they're doing it really well. Um one of the shows that I really enjoy, but I am behind on, so no spoilers, is Empire. Uh-huh. I love Empire. And I can talk about Empire for days, especially when I talk with other people. This isn't really about race representation, but it's about, you know, the representation of Cookie Lion. Because mm-hmm. I talk to people and people complain that she's an angry black woman stereotype. But what I love about the show is that if you watch it, she's not a stereotype. Mm-hmm. She's angry. She's a woman. And she's black. 
But as you follow her story, you come to learn why she's angry and you're angry too, right? So it's really important to try and understand people's emotions. And I think both of these shows do a really wonderful job um, sharing the nuances of stories that often just get displayed as an emotion, right? So Mm -hmm. why are you so upset about this? Well, if you don't understand the systematic injustices, you know, committed on my people and how this is continuing to perpetuate, then you can't understand why I'm upset. But these shows do a good job of like showing it a little bit at a time and introducing viewers who are unfamiliar with this material to the, you know, deep, lengthy, layered conversation Mm -hmm. that is underneath it. But with Cookie, I think that if if a black woman happens to be angry, but that anger, that representation of the anger isn't used to diminish her opinions, to shut her up, to shut her down, to keep her quiet, because the angry black woman is a stereotype that is placed upon people who have a right to be angry, to shut them up and to diminish those opinions. And so if it's not used to dismiss the opinions, I mean, is, is that why that works? Um, probably mm-hmm. I, I would, I would agree with you on that. Like she is the center of that entire program. Yeah. So she, when she's angry, the audience needs to know why she's angry and be angry with her. Exactly. Um, and we're not watching this from Lucius's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. We're not watching this from all the boys surrounding her, right? She's got three sons. She's got a husband or mm-hmm. baby daddy or whatever their status is now. Um, divorcee, ex, <laughs> whatever. Um, but yeah, you're right. She is centered. And when she's angry, the whole family knows it. And the whole family is on notice. And the whole family is attempting to process and understand why mm-hmm. she's angry. And I think from, you know, that perspective, we can all learn how to try a little bit harder, even with the people we think we know, mm-hmm. we don't always understand their anger. Yeah, absolutely. When it's Taraji Henson, too. Yeah, who exactly. Is amazing. I love amazing. that woman. She yeah. is incredible. All right. Well, I think I'm going to have to have just a whole discussion with you on this topic alone and do nothing but that because that would be amazing. (laughs) But right now we're here to enjoy the West Wing and celebrate Jed Bartlett being our president. This episode aired on November 28, 2001 and was written by Aaron Sorkin with story by credits to Felicia Wilson, Laura Glasser and Julia Dahl. The Women of Kumar was directed by Alex Graves, one of the most prolific of West Wing directors and was the director we were praising so high last week in our discussion of the season three finale, Posse Comitatus. One of the things we ended up discussing frequently here on Jed Bartlett is My President is the treatment of female characters and the role of femininity in the text of the show itself. It always seems to me like the West Wing is haunted by a doggedly stubborn and particularly white male blind spot that causes the show to both awkwardly attempt to remedy misogynistic and racist cultural mindsets while failing to see them clearly and sometimes simultaneously promoting them by failing to reject the premises upon which these mindsets are based. It's like listening to a guy who emotionally abuses and gaslights the women in his life complaining about the guy next door who beats his wife. The Women of Kumar is an attempt to look at some of this directly, although doing it through the lens of a foreign nation that treats its women horribly. I couldn't possibly think of a better person to have a discussion about this episode with than you, Cherise, so I'm so excited that you, you took the time to watch this episode and discuss it with me. Of course. I, I also um, I also rewatched the episode before, so I have some interesting uh, 
you know, this is episode nine, so I also watched episode eight. So uh-huh. I think there's some interesting parallels there we can also talk about. Oh, but, great. Well, I'm yeah. looking forward to getting into that. Let's get into the synopsis. In this episode of The West Wing, in order to renew an airbase lease, the United States must make an arms deal with an allied country that customarily kills, rapes, and beats its women, and CJ struggles with the news. The president is being sued over a casual comment about seatbelts, and Sam tries to institute a national mandatory seatbelt law. Josh is urged by women's rights advocate Amy Gardner to change language in a UN treaty regarding sex trafficking, and a possible case of mad cow disease hits the United States, and our merry band of civil servants have to decide how to handle the news. All right, so I think with this episode, you know, we got to start with the big stuff. We got to start with this story about the arms deal with Kumar. Now, my understanding is that you haven't watched a whole lot of the West Wing. That's right. I have not watched a whole lot of the West Wing. It, uh, let's see. I think it launched in 99, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when I went to college. So mm-hmm. I didn't really pick up new programs when I was, sure. in, you know, in college. Cause you know, there's better things to do on a mm-hmm. Friday night problem sets. <laughs> so um, I never really got into it. Having said that, I don't think I generally enjoy um, like of my own volition. I enjoy mm-hmm. them periodically, but um, I don't choose to watch a lot of legal procedural stuff. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like law and order outside of that. Like I don't watch uh, the good, like my mother loves the good wife. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Scandal, these sort of other uh, legal based dramas. I just started rewatching law, um, LA Law. Mm-hmm. And oh, so that's right. pretty cool. Yeah. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's generally not my genre of choice, but when I watch it and like when I watch them with my mother, it's fine. Mm-hmm. I enjoy mm-hmm. it. Uh, I liked watching this. I had to make a concerted effort not to you know, binge because I'm yes. trying to get work done. But I did watch the first two episodes from the first season mm-hmm. and then episode eight and nine um, from season three. From this season. Oh, yeah, that's to get great. a better well, idea of the introduction of the characters, the kind mm-hmm. of story arc and so on. So I'm feeling pretty good. I've got stuff to say, but oh, you know. Good. Well, I'm excited to hear it. Well, tell me what you think about this, this storyline with the, uh, the arms deal and the women of Kumar. You know, to be honest with you, it was weird that it was the title because, mm-hmm. and I guess I haven't watched enough to see how they deploy the titles, right? Mm-hmm. Each show has their own kind of unique quirks yeah. mm-hmm. about it. Um, so I don't know what the pattern is and we can talk about that. This felt mm-hmm. very much like a B narrative to me, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to the A narrative, although I don't really know what the A narrative was. I suppose the A narrative might have been, um, oh, who is the, not Leo, um, Toby? The, no, not Toby. Oh, Josh. Um, Josh. Josh with Amy Gardner with the UN Treaty and the Women? Yes, yes, yes. Josh. Mm-hmm, Excellent. Mm-hmm. So he really seemed more foregrounded to me. And yes. that's actually a metaphor that I don't want to lose because I think it's a problem. Here we are mm-hmm. talking about the needs of women um, mm-hmm. and, you know, the situation of prostitution as a output of long social injustice, right? Mm -hmm. So prostitution is the end. Uh, I mean, it is technically the oldest profession, but it's also the only means by which a woman could put food on her own table for a very, Mm -hmm. very long time. So 
um, here we are talking about the nuances of prostitution, the reason women get into prostitution, the difference between forced and unforced prostitution. Mm -hmm. And all of it is through the lens of this white man Mm -hmm. who doesn't seem to get it, but know that he has to get it. And there's some value in that, right? Especially Mm -hmm. if you don't understand this discussion and you are with him, you identify with him Mm -hmm. and you're trying to parse these conversations. But again, we see the struggle of women needs to be understood by this man. Mm -hmm. And as opposed to uh, explaining the struggle on its own, and I think they do that, but nonetheless, like, if he doesn't understand it, then we haven't told a good enough story. That's that's what's happening in that narrative. Mm -hmm. I see the same thing happening in CJ's narrative, Mm -hmm. right? What does a Kumari woman look like? Yeah, we don't know. We never see a Kumari woman. Mm-hmm. We never. I believe they refer to it as somewhere in the Middle East. But yeah, they don't, it's, yeah, yeah. It's a country that we're supposed to be allied with, um, right. despite the terrible things that that happen in that country. Right. Um, so it's it's a really kind of interesting thing. And one of the things, because you haven't watched a whole lot of The West Wing, one of the big problems that The West Wing has is the way it treats women and and deals with women it it tries like and i think a lot of it comes from aaron sorkin like aaron sorkin is a brilliant man and a brilliant writer and has a lot of amazing things going for him but his ability to write and understand women is not one of them and it's been kind of a, a achilles heel for this show throughout the run and and most of the episodes of Jed Bartlett is my president. My guest and I almost always get into this discussion about all the ways in which Aaron Sorkin got it so wrong, you know, in his dealing with women. So I feel like, and also one of the things that I notice is that um, he he doesn't usually give like Aaron Sorkin writes all of the scripts in the first four seasons of um, of The West Wing, with very very few exceptions. And there will be an occasional story by credit to somebody who was on the writing staff. But this one happens to have, I believe all of the women who were on the staff at that time. So I feel like there's a statement being made, like, we can understand women, we can understand women's issues, you know? And so I think that there's an attempt, and it feels it feels very, um, you know, like almost not even subtext. It feels almost textual that this is an attempt to be like, we get the women, you know? <laughs> like, we, we're with the women. And I appreciate that they want to do that and that they're trying to do that. And it's one of the things about Aaron Sorkin that I do appreciate that. I think that he's always trying. He may fail, but I think he tries and he genuinely means well. Well, the the issue that I wanted to mention when I mm-hmm. asked if we ever meet any Kumari women yeah. is now we have this privileged white woman trying mm-hmm. to tell us why we should care about these, I assume, little brown women on the other side of the world. So that was yes. my point, is that mm-hmm. you they can they can say, and I would ask you, all those women who are on the cast, are they all are on the writing crew, are they all white? Right? So we have yeah. this inherent white lens. And it was really offensive to me because she keeps coming out and she's like, what about these women? What about these women? I'm like, you're not telling a story of any single woman, mm-hmm. right? So like, we don't actually know. And so I understand that Kumari, Kumar is a false country. That's why I understand that. Mm -hmm. But the point is that here we have this privileged white woman who's getting angry, to go Mm -hmm. back to our earlier conversation, right? Who's getting angry about what's happening to these little, to these brown women on the other side of the world. Uh, But at no point do we ever meet any. At no point do we ever actually hear their stories. Mm -hmm. At no point do we ever actually hear this is what one woman is going through. We are only seeing CJ's anger at it. And so for me, this, again, perpetuates outrage for someone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like when we talk about people who are offended, for example, and I tell my students, Mm -hmm. don't ever 
perceive, don't use that you're offended as a rationale for mm-hmm. why something should or should not be. Because you know what offends me? Football. <laughs> I find it offensive that we are celebrating grown men giving each other traumatic brain injuries mm-hmm. every Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and Friday for high school. Mm-hmm. Like, that is offensive to me. You know who cares that I find it offensive? Nobody. Mm-hmm. So don't say something is offensive. Say it's problematic. Right. But in each of these instances, we see, like, especially with CJ, that she's offended for these other women. Mm-hmm. And we never hear their story. And that's one of the big issues with uh, white feminism. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's not just feminists who are white. And I always make that point because sometimes the students get up in arms. Yeah. Like, no, white feminism is literally non-intersectional feminism. Exactly. You saying this is why we should care about Kumari women instead of saying, hey, here's a Kumari woman and we should care what she has to say. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was the issue I found. And especially when we think about it with relation to the episode before, which is when CJ meets the Indians in the lobby. Yes. That one. Right. (laughs) We actually hear their story. We Mm -hmm. actually see them again. We're encouraged to empathize with them through CJ's Mm -hmm. eyes, which is problematic and necessary. So I understand that. But for me, watching those two episodes together and seeing CJ trying to fight for uh, a systematically uh, stigmatized, discriminated, marginalized community, I thought Indians in the lobby did it better Mm -hmm. than the women of Kumar. All right. No, I like that. I think that's good. Yeah, um, yeah I hadn't really, you know, I mean, that that hadn't really occurred to me, but you're absolutely right. And I think that when we go over into the Amy Gardner story with Josh, mm-hmm. we have something of a similar thing, because she's talking about these Thai girls who hung themselves, you know, in Bethesda, all of the things that are happening all over the world with women being forced into prostitution. And, uh, and this idea of, you know, financial coercion is still coercion, when this is right. the only thing that a woman can do, you know, to have any kind of independence to take care of herself, then that is still coercion, which makes it all, of course, rape, you know. Right. Um, and I found that to be to be kind of interesting, too, because we the West Wing is the white wing. I mean, we yeah. don't have people of color. We have a couple of people in the secretarial poll, you know, who yeah. are who are women of color. But you don't see aside from Charlie, Charlie's the only person of color in the main cast, you know. Right. So we don't really get a lot of of representation from people who are within the communities that we're talking about. And a lot of times it does feel like this very kind of, you know, patriarchal white view of these struggles and of these issues and of these problems. Right. So um, so I think that's really good. And and for anybody who is interested in learning more about white feminism and intersectionality and feminism, there's tons of amazing resources out there. And it's something that we should definitely educate ourselves on. It's sometimes hard, you know, like when you're a white person and you read all this stuff, you're like, I mean, well, but I don't, you know, you can mean well all you want, but if you don't take the time to like educate and and try to learn and try to like you know see things from a wider lens and a wider perspective, then the intention doesn't really matter that much. So right. I'd like to just one quick diversion that we can get back to the story. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've been really thinking about when we talk about the intersection of media mm-hmm. and psychology and social justice is the mislabeling of white guilt. Yes. So the phrase white guilt is often bandied about usually to dismiss white people who are fighting for non-white people, Mm -hmm. right? That it's used to say, oh, you have white guilt. 
Mm-hmm. But white guilt is often used to define it in a public sense that you feel bad about what other white people have done. And now you are trying super hard to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's how we use the word white guilt. Having said that, in psychology, we talk about the difference between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And the difference is with shame, you have no control over what happened. Mm-hmm. So if you trip and fall in front of like the cutest boy in class, you feel ashamed, right? You feel mm-hmm. that you feel this sense of malaise and despair, but it's not because you could control that action. Mm-hmm. So people feel shame about their sexuality. People feel shame about their race, their weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with weight that gets works into guilt because there's a discourse that, you know, you should be able to control your weight, but nonetheless, yeah. mm-hmm. that shame is something that you have no control over, but you feel bad that it happened or mm-hmm. that, that you are that thing or that it happened, uh, you tripped and fell. Guilt is when you have control. Mm-hmm. I stole something and I feel guilty, right? So you made a concerted action and now you feel bad about that action. Mm-hmm. That's guilt. So in really, when we're talking about white guilt, we're actually talking about white shame, yeah. assuming you don't own slaves. Right. So uh, we're talking about white shame. We're talking about something that someone else did that you feel bad about, but technically you have no control over. Mm -hmm. And so the only way to resolve those feelings is to take control over something, Mm -hmm. is to make an effort to go out and resolve it. And I hate when people use the word white guilt Mm -hmm. to dismiss somebody's actions, because we can think about how guilt exists in other dimensions. Frankly, our entire philanthropic industry is based on class guilt. Mm-hmm. I can eat and you can't. So I'm going to give you a dollar, mm-hmm. right? That assuages my guilt because I gave you some food or I gave you some money. And somehow we don't poo poo that when people donate on Christmas or mm-hmm. whatever holiday and so on. You know, we're like, Oh, you gave money. That's cool. No, I'm doing that to assuage my class guilt. So I can go back through my life and you know, get into my super nice car and eat my super fancy food and throw away 50% of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to take that opportunity to differentiate between these ideas, because I think to bring it back to this episode, I think that CJ definitely feels guilt, right? Mm -hmm. She feels guilt, especially because she has no control over this narrative in a Mm -hmm. public format, because she's also angry about the mad cow, right? She's like, we Mm -hmm. need to tell people about the mad cow. We need to, she kind of wants to tell people about the Kumar trade, right? So she's feeling caught in this, um, this moment of inaction. Well, I think she's feeling complicit. She has to deliver the news. She has to deliver it and and announce it at the thing and not say anything. Right. You know, so, I mean, you feel like you're you're being made complicit in something that you're completely against. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I talk with the students. So one of the assignments I give in class, I ask them to write an email to their immediate supervisor explaining why something is problematic. Mm -hmm. Hey, we should not run this commercial. Because this is, you know, how it connects to these other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I feel I'm watching this episode made me even happier about that assignment, because the question is, how do you speak truth to power and still maintain your job? (laughs) Especially for our graduating seniors, Mm -hmm. right? That they see things and we think they're all woke and they think they're all woke and we taught them all this stuff in diversity class and they know Mm -hmm. why you can't associate, why you shouldn't associate black people with monkeys, right? They know those things, Mm -hmm. but there's a reason that 2006 Vogue LeBron Bunchen cover 
went to supermarket shelves before anybody said anything. And mm -hmm. if you don't know that one, I highly recommend just type in Vogue LeBron and it'll mm -hmm. pop right up. And it's a photo, it's a cover done by, oop, I didn't turn off my phone either. Uh, <laughs> it's a cover <laughs> done by Annie Leibovitz uh, that features LeBron James like grasping Giselle Bündchen. He's got a basketball in one hand and Giselle Bündchen in the other. And it looks exactly exactly down to the color of the dress and the quality of her hair and his face like a anti-black king kong propaganda poster from 1920 oh my god if you have not seen this and this is to your readers or your <laughs> listeners please just google it right now yeah uh, it is i show it to the students i show the cover and i'm like is this racist and they're like well, i don't think so maybe because he's an athlete <laughs> like they come up with reasons because it's a trick question right. you know it mm -hmm. um but then i show them the king kong poster and their jaws drop oh my right? god so basically that means someone at vogue either nobody noticed because mm -hmm. nobody knew the history of mm -hmm. you know black representation in the united states or nobody said anything yeah and being able to say something and be and keep your job mm -hmm. is a unique struggle that we need to do better at training our students for if we expect them to bring change to the industry Oh, yeah. No, that's fantastic that you do that. That's a great exercise because that is a really tough thing. Like, you know, I feel for CJ in this, you know, circumstance. But one of the things, too, that, that bugged me, and I don't know if you had a response to this. We have this opening uh, with the president and Toby talking in the Oval Office. Every time we make one of these deals with a place like Kumar, I feel the women around here look at me funny. I think you're probably wrong about that. You think it's just guilt? Yes, sir. Well, how should I deal with guilt? Be more like me. And so we go through this whole thing and he continues on till I'm just saying she knows who the good guys are, right? You know? Right. And yeah, I remember that scene. Yeah. So one of the things that bugged me about this was why is it only the women who should have a problem with this? Like, if you're a man, you shouldn't have a problem with women who are getting beaten and abused and that somehow it's not your problem, you know? So he's only upset about the women giving him funny looks. And then we have just like this this weird kind of guilt thing. Right. So I don't know. Did you did you notice that? Did you have a response to that? I mean, it, it was a painful scene because you can see the president trying to be empathetic, yeah. but not receiving any support in the empathy. Mm -hmm. And so to go back to my original point about who, whose lens through which we see the world mm -hmm. and what happens when someone's angry, right? Like your comment of cookies anger not being used to dismiss her mm -hmm. is literally what's happening in this script. Oh, the yeah. Anger is being used to dismiss, uh, period. We mm -hmm. never hear their voices. He never stops to go, why are they angry at us? The women just right. seem to be up in arms. Well, I guess they all work together, so maybe they're all on the rag this month. Like, there's no effort on his part that we see, right? We always have to argue that television, we don't see everything. Right. But there's no effort on his part to ask why are the women mad at me like right. at all just oh the women are upset oh that's okay they're all having their period like right. it's, it, it it was mind-boggling to me because it's an opportunity to be empathetic and i think again is exemplary of your comments of you know it, it felt it felt like tokenism Right. Look, yeah. we got all the women on the staff now yep. they can't be angry because they all have a writing credit and it's going to help them with their you know was it right. Astra? What's the, what's the writing? WGA. Uh, mm -hmm. WGA, right. It's going to help with their WGA credits. So look, we're helping. It's like, 
why are you upset? Because we just helped you get another credit towards your status of X, Y, Z. Right. For me, from the bottom up, from like behind (laughs) the camera to uh, behind the line or below the line to above the line at every level on this episode, it seems like a uh, like seems like a token. Like, look, look, we did it for you. And you're like, it does anything for me. They threw you or throwing you a bone. We're talking about women's issues, you know, but but the thing is, that in this same episode where we're talking, you know, so vehemently about these, you know, these women's issues, um, we have Toby not once, but twice being extremely dismissive of CJ. There's this one part in the beginning where he tells her about the um, the deal with Kumar. No. When did we make an arms deal with Kumar? I really don't know. What does it matter? What does it matter? Yeah. What are we selling? Don't start. Right. Right. Which I think is incredibly dismissive. And I cannot imagine him saying that. Well, maybe Toby would. Toby might say that to to any of the guys, too. But it's just not typically that kind of tone. And then there's another point where she's in the meeting with the veterans and she's talking with them. And she's saying, how would you feel? Now, it's six decades later. And while they didn't conquer Europe, the Nazis exist as a recognized government in some small corner of the European Union. That would never have happened. Really? They killed a quarter of my unit. They killed a third of my classmates from Erasmus High School. We would never have allowed We did that. it in Cambodia. CJ, knock it off. It's, it's extremely, extremely dismissive. And then we wrap that up with this moment with Toby and President Bartlett where uh, it's just after uh, CJ makes the comparison with, well, you know, what if... Um, what if the cow had MS or something like that, which is part of this storyline for right, President Bartlett, people. you know, that he had MS and he, and he kept it a secret. Um, and so she leaves and Bartlett goes over to Toby and says, Go and apologize to CJ for whatever you did. I didn't do anything like that matters. Thank you, sir. As though like it doesn't understanding what you did wrong and apologizing for that thing that you did wrong with a full understanding of what it was is not how you deal with women. How you deal with women is you just apologize regardless of who's wrong, just to shut them up. So it is, it is like this throughout the entire episode, we're being fed over and over again that we just want to shut the women up. Right. Uh, You know, Two things, and then I walk back to another, two things, right? That, yeah, we want to shut the women up, and I, I appreciate that you using Toby, but I think, I can't remember which episode it was. Oh, it's the pilot episode. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. the pilot episode when um, Josh makes that offhanded comment, and mm-hmm. then they bring in the people to, like, the the religious right yep. to, you know, uh, soothe things over, and then Toby gets enraged at her New York comedy your new york values and he's like she meant jewish right Mm -hmm. so suddenly he's outraged because he's offended but he can't see or understand why cj is uh outraged or offended and i'll make a point to say that you know i completely agree that just apologize in my opinion i would rather have you understand than apologize yes if you don't understand then don't bother i'd rather have you understand and disagree yeah than apologize just to shut me up so, and one of the other things that I really, I, I appreciate you bringing um, attention to the perpetual dismissiveness of CJ mm-hmm. uh, or perpetually dismissing CJ, because one of the things that was so evident to me is the important importance of cooking the turkey. Cooking the yeah. turkey becomes more important than understanding the plight of women. Stuffing mm-hmm. the turkey, how much the turkey is going to, uh, how much the turkey has to be cooked to, whether you use 
oysters and the fact like it becomes a joke that mm-hmm. Bartlett is constantly forcing everyone to listen about his turkey recipe. Yes. <laughs> but here CJ is trying to get people to listen to women dying. Yeah. And that like they're forced to listen to Bartlett. They won't listen to her. Maybe that was done consciously. It doesn't seem like it to me. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I do find it alarming in this episode how nobody nobody listens to her nobody takes her seriously um and i do like the moment where you know she turns to toby and says you know if i was living in kamar i wouldn't be allowed to say shove it up your ass toby but since i'm not shove it up your ass toby but then we have this discussion with nancy mcnally toward the end where um where cj makes this connection she says the point is that apartheid was an East Hampton clam bake compared to what we laughingly refer to as the life these women lead. And if we had sold M1A1s to South Africa 15 years ago, you'd have set the building on fire. Thank God we never needed to refuel in Johannesburg. I found that to be kind of offensive. Like the way that she was speaking to Nancy McNally, who is serious business, Nancy McNally. And this is another thing too, is that Nancy McNally is, is, you know, part of the, the like NSA team. Like she's serious high up. Everybody else is called by whatever their rank is like Admiral or doctor, whatever. She's always Nancy. And it makes me crazy. She's also not white. Right. So. Right. Well, uh, well, Admiral Fitzwallis is not white either. So, I mean, he's, you know, um, but she's one of the few like high level people of color that we have on this show. She's a woman of color. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. an intersectional low point. I guess they refer to CJ by her first name as well. But, you know, if this woman is so high ranking and they still refer to her by her first name when they don't do that for, you know, NSA men, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of layers there. And. In my opinion, whether or not it's conscious is beside the point. It perpetuates, um, it perpetuates a trend where certain people, specifically women and women mm-hmm. of color, are seen as less valuable to the team or not as uh, or not bringing the same um, knowledge to the fore. Like you're not admiral, and I appreciate you know like when my students call me doctor or professor, right? Like yeah. Mm-hmm. It's because I have something to offer and that title demonstrates it. Exactly. If you right. Call me by my first name, then are we getting coffee? Was that mm-hmm. what's happening? Or are you trying <laughs> to listen to me explain what's wrong with your paper? Right. So having said that, you know, like I appreciated um, CJ's claim. I mm-hmm. thought the metaphor was fine. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good metaphor. Um, although, again, we're asked to see racism through a white woman's lens Mm -hmm. as she's lecturing this woman of color. Yes. And Mm -hmm. the fact that the woman of color can't even acknowledge it, in my opinion, is a writing problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to put anything on this character. Mm -hmm. The fact that she, you can agree with uh, CJ's claim Mm -hmm. and still say, well, this is what we're doing. I, I, you know, yeah, that's a good metaphor. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. should save that for next time. Right. (laughs) But she doesn't. She just blows it off. And um, the weirdest part about that is you expect as a woman of color, because there's so few people of color aside from Charlie. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so few people of color that you expect this woman of color to be affected by uh, conversations of racism. And Mm -hmm. she's not. Right. So for me, that's very much like a sort of. tokenism like look Mm -hmm. uh you can complain about racism but this woman of color here doesn't have a problem with it so i don't know why we're still talking about it exactly one of my best friends is a woman of color and she doesn't care right exactly so why (laughs) and i don't know why you're so angry 
Exactly. Why are you so angry about this? Well, the thing about Nancy McNally is that she is she's very like pragmatic and very business, you know, but I think that this circumstance, it felt weird. And I didn't like CJ yelling at Nancy about yeah, it. Like you know, um, I was uncomfortable with that, especially because like Nancy McNally is one of my favorite characters on the show. We don't see nearly enough of her, but she is so freaking serious business. And I really, I love that character. And I love Anna Devere Smith who plays her. Uh, so when yeah, CJ's yeah. yelling at her, it bugged me. It just yeah. bugged me. And I was like, you know, I, I yell at Toby. Absolutely. Toby deserves a smack, you know, but, but Nancy McNally, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so for me, that was a little bit, a little bit tough. Um, and then at the end, you know, we have this whole thing. We have Bartlett telling Toby to go and apologize to her. You're not wrong, but just apologize because whatever, right? Right. Um, and then we have this moment at the end where CJ does the announcement. Sometime Tuesday, you'll be briefed at the Pentagon. The DOD will be announcing that we've renewed our lease another 10 years at the Khalifa Air Base in Kumar. I understand they've promised to paint and add new carpet. And then Toby does this little like hand over his heart gesture, which is an incredibly sweet gesture. Like I've seen the GIF and I love it. It's one of my favorite that like, you know, run around uh, Twitter every time anybody wants to, you know, send you like a nice warm fuzzy. They'll send you the Toby hands over the heart GIF. So in that moment, like he hasn't apologized to her. Absolutely nothing has been resolved. He hasn't even spoken to her. He hasn't expressed that he understands, but that we're stuck, you know, he, nothing. And he sends her that little love heart. And I'm like, what is that even about? What is, there's no yeah, resolution. I didn't get that. Yeah, there's no resolution to this story. So I didn't understand that at all. And that's one of the things, like, as we go through all the stories in this episode, we have no resolution anywhere. There's nothing. Like, every single storyline. We go into uh, Josh and the forced prostitution with the UN Treaty. Um, you know, we have Josh doing this this whole meditation on, you know, prostitution and the use of the word forced. We have him go in and talk with Amy Gardner. Now, Amy Gardner is a character that I, I genuinely like. Like, I think she's smart and she's tough and she's strong. But we have Josh go into this space and he's afraid of the artwork because it's women and they're not, you know, curling up and being, you know, um, you demure know, and exactly. seductive. Exactly. They're not making him comfortable. They're not like curling themselves up into little pretzels to make him comfortable. He goes in there. He makes fun of the artwork. He sits down with her. She schools him hard. Right. And then all of a sudden, I don't know how you respond to this, but all of a sudden she's doing balloon animals. They give her like this quirky, you know, manic pixie dream political operative thing, you know, and I that just hit me as so incredibly weird. And this is the kind of thing that Aaron Sorkin does with women, like when he wants to put them in a romantic kind of situation, like he can mean, write tough women. But you mean, as soon put them, you mean put them in their put them in their place? Yeah. Okay, you know? sorry. I had to get that in there right then. Keep going. Exactly. No, <laughs> but he, he like he does this this cute, quirky kind of manic pixie thing, you know? With right. these women. And and the thing is, is that like Amy outside of those moments, I really liked her. I thought she was good. She was tough. She was standing up to Josh. She wasn't taking any of his nonsense. I like the fact that she called him Jay. You know, she was like, you know, not bowing down to him, not, you know, anything. And they've had, they have a history, like they've known each other. They've been friends for years. But, um, but I thought it was, it was good. And I liked her. Were they sleeping together? I don't think so. I think at this point she had had like a relationship with his roommate in college or something oh, like okay. that. So they knew each other like on a personal level, but it wasn't romantic until we start this flirtation up with them. Um, but I don't know. What did you think of Amy Gardner? How did so you respond to her? 
Um, you know, she, we can talk about the angry black woman as a trope. Mm -hmm. We can also talk about the ball busting bitch. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of which she is Mm -hmm. more, way more so than CJ because CJ has to answer to the president. This woman clearly really high up in whatever the consortium that she works at. Like she's Mm -hmm. got a massive office with all windows. So like clearly she's executive to some degree. Um, so she can be more of a ball busting bitch than CJ can be, mm-hmm. you know, CJ, when she comes to bust your balls, she's going to finish it with a joke right. and then go back to whatever tomorrow, as long as you put your hand over your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, with this, uh, with Amy, uh, I liked it. I, I personally don't really like those kind of characters, mm-hmm. but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or like her whole demeanor. That's yes. I agree that pixie manic pixie dream girl was mm-hmm. very much present in her deliveries yeah in her engagement with him having so that's the actress mm-hmm. if i take the actress out you know and look at the script and who how someone else might play it i kind of enjoyed the balloon animals and i'll tell you mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. it's because when you're a ball busting bitch you're not allowed to show anything else right you're so, not allowed to be playful or you know there's nothing else to you except that right. you're a scary angry feminist right so right. I appreciate mm-hmm. that they brought that in. I appreciate that she was like, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and explain it to you. I make balloon animals because my nephews like it and it's fun. Exactly. Back to the point. Like, <laughs> I appreciated that. I like that. I liked when he walked away and said, the art in here scares me. And she's like, that's the point. Yeah. Like, I I appreciated the writing of that character mm-hmm. um, to say, yeah, I'm a ball busting bitch. And I like my nephews and I'm learning how to make balloon animals and you're a fool and I'm going to throw a water balloon at you. Right. So like being able to be both serious and silly is a privilege Uh not usually afforded to people who are from stigmatized and marginalized groups. The, The nature of being stigmatized means that you don't get to make balloon animals if you need to be a ball busting bitch. Do you remember in 2008 when Hillary like choked up? Because somebody asked her how she does it every day. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. the fact that she choked up demonstrated that she couldn't lead a country. Yeah. You're like, no, she's empathizing with other women who exactly. can't do it every day. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't value empathy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but that, that takes me But off. we don't value complexity. We don't we want to simplify every person down to one quality, you know? Yeah. And the thing is that, like... I. The balloon animals in and of themselves, like, I like the fact that we've got this complexity. I like the fact that we allow her to be both staunchly feminist, incredibly intelligent, strong of will, and playful, you know? Um, But I think there is something in the the specific way that Aaron Sorkin writes these kinds of women that, for me, it just hit a sore spot because I'm like, okay, now she's going to be this quirky, manic pixie, you know, which is the kind of thing that, like, I think think you're right. I think it may be something in the energy that Mary Louise Parker specifically brings. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Parker. I just don't even like watching her on screen just in general yeah. i don't even have anything bad to say about her i just mm-hmm. don't like i wasn't she in weeds yeah yeah i she tried was man i tried <laughs> so hard because when that came out i was really involved in the marijuana legalization movement so that was yeah. like that was the mainstream conversation about mm-hmm. marijuana and i was like man i do not like this woman yeah and i didn't even remember what her character was i was just like meh <laughs> so i can't even speak about whether or not uh, her playing of the character is valuable because, like I said, I just I don't I just don't like her demeanor. But I- yeah, I think she just didn't appeal to me, and the way that she did it had that had that very. And of course, she's like she's waif like, 
you know, which is another thing. Like she can be tough and strong, but God forbid she should have like a strong body. Like, you know, she has to be 105 pounds. Super cute and super femme Mm -hmm. in order for her to be masculine in this other way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But the thing, one of the things that I, I liked in this is that we had Donna, you know, Josh's assistant, Donna, we have this thing in the West Wing where it's most of the time a man explaining something most of the time to a woman, most often Josh explaining things to Donna. And in this, we have Donna, you know, bringing around the point that, you know, leaving the word forced in the treaty condones consensual prostitution. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Do you think it's possible there's a broader point? No. Why? What? That leaving the word forced in the treaty condones consensual prostitution. That's ridiculous. I'm saying it could be spun that way. That we condone prostitution? Yeah. It can't be spun that way. Okay. Think you can? I just did. I just did. Which I loved, you know, yeah. and I loved that coming from Donna because uh, she, I love that actress. I love the two of them together. Josh um, is a character that I, I, I love kind of almost despite himself. Like he's, he's a big jerk, but there's something about Bradley Whitford's charm that just gets me every time. Fair so enough. I like it when Josh gets schooled. You know, I like it when um, when Donna, you know, turns it around on him and and, you know, shows him things and explains things to him. It's it's always fun when we get that. So I really enjoyed kind of that element of this is that, you know, Josh went in thinking there's no problem. This is silly. It's one word. And by the end, the recommendation is made that the U.N. review the language. Um, so I thought that that was pretty good. But it also, again, it's like one of these things where it's it's not. Again, another another storyline in this episode. It's not really resolved because they're going to review the language, but we don't know if they're going to change it, how they're going to change it, if they do change it. Like, is this a win or not? You know, like, right. what is this? So um, I found it to be an interesting conversation. Um, I love that moment where um, where he says, how am I not supposed to call you a hypocrite when you say that the government shouldn't tell women what to do with their bodies? Exercise some self-control, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I I thought it was an interesting narrative. I think, again, Josh shows more understanding of the issue to which does not supposedly directly involve him. I argue that all human issues affect all humans, but whatever. Yes. Um, he really comes to, like, we see him learn. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, and this is kind of the conversation that you were saying before, you know, you got to learn on your own. Like all these women have to explain it to him. They have to put it out there. They have to wait for him to be willing to listen. Right. Mm -hmm. And it just goes round and round and round. Um, but you know, yeah, by the end of it, they make some really interesting points. And I think that, um, it's an interesting juxtaposition to the CJ argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think so. Um, yeah, and it is, it's, you know, everybody has to explain to Josh. He's completely resistant. He's he's dismissive of even the first lady when she first walks in. Uh, when Donna, you know, talks to him about it, he says, oh, yes, the rare valid point. He calls Amy Lady Godiva. Like, there is this just like kind of almost automatic dismissal of of women and the points that they're making and the arguments that they're trying to make. So I do like that at the end, you know, he comes around and, you know, and he agrees, but, you know, they all have to beat him over the head with it for him to even say, hey, maybe there's something worth listening to here. And if I can add one data point to your argument yes. is the fact that he doesn't even remember. He doesn't even know that his mother moved 10 months ago. Yeah. Right. Like he's dismissing his own mother's living situation. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I guess that's just the person he is. 
Yeah, you know, he's he's a guy who needs and you know, it's nice to have characters who need growth. You know, I mean, you can see Josh grow and and that can be that can be kind of fun. But um but this episode is is not I think an episode that shows off the men in the West Wing to their their greatest, you know, greatest of potential. Um, Does the audience see those flaws or do they just attribute them to being dynamic characters? Right. Like, right. I, so I don't know. I don't think at the time that they did. Right. We talk about it all the time. Like, you know, who gets to be an antihero? White mm-hmm. men get to be an antihero. White men and Denzel Washington and maybe Will Smith. Right. right? That's it. Uh, and Glenn Close, not Glenn Close. Um, ma, ma, what's the woman who wins all the Oscars? Uh, Meryl Streep. Exactly. They mm-hmm. get to be antiheroes. Mm-hmm. You don't see black folks. Be- I mean, we have it now with uh, uh, Elisa, uh, Elise Keating on mm-hmm. How to Get Away with Murder. Annalise, Annalise Keating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, when we see the antihero, that is mm-hmm. to say we see someone who is evil and good simultaneously and we resolve that. Mm-hmm. But we can only resolve that for generally people who are of a higher, higher hierarchy um, because we see those characters. Mm-hmm. Women, for the most part, especially, I mean, less so in the past, like five years, but whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't see women as dynamic characters. They're supposed to be nurturers. And they definitely mm-hmm. can't do anything evil because that doesn't make sense to the audience. But men right, right. not understanding things like, oh, well, you know, I can under I, I can appreciate this dynamic character. Right. I can see the complexity, you exactly. know, because most of the people who are writing, you know, and this is my whole above the line thing. Like, you know, you have got to have um, and I like the way that Shonda Rhimes talks about it. Right. She's not doing diversity. <laughs> She's doing normalization of people yeah. who have existed and who have been there, you know. And I think it's the same thing with Shonda Rhimes as well, that like, I'm just going to tell this story. I'm not going to explain it for somebody who doesn't know, because if they don't know, they can either not watch it or they can just type it into Google. But they can figure it out, you know, I mean, and that's the thing. Like, I love I love that it's normalization. It's not here. We're giving you diversity because because when we talk about diversity, what that is, is I mean, to me, what it says is it's the white people giving you space. Yeah. You know, it's the white people saying, hey, have a seat at the table. Right. And then having said that, the people who are arguing against diversity are saying, why do I need to, um, you know, make this effort for other people? So even in that definition, the right. definition you just gave, which I agree with, puts diversity at fault yes. um, and is seen as negative because now I have to help somebody when I was told that being an American means helping yourself. Right. But there's also like this, you know, the the sense of that normalization that rather than saying, you know, the white people are going to give us a space because they have that to give. It is rather that this belongs to all of us, this culture, this existence, this where we live. We are all here. We are all part of it. And it's not saying that it's it's like the white person who has to uh, has to give it. It's that this is we already own this. We already own this space, you know, right. and now we're just being represented in this space. We're just taking our our place at the table. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I, I really like that idea of it's not, it's not pushing diversity. It's embracing normalization. It's just saying, this is what our culture is that right. we are, you know, more than 50% of these groups that have been marginalized traditionally, you know, I mean, globally, I believe the white population globally is like what? 15, 20%. Yeah. Yeah, so, how the hell did we get in charge of everything? I mean, seriously. Uh, I'm colonialism. Uh, <laughs> yes. Colonialism is how you got in charge. A lot, <laughs> a lot of bad stuff. A lot of bad stuff. 
but <laughs> colonialism, genocide, slavery, you know. The oh, trifecta. God. It's bad <laughs> stuff. My white shame is kicking in. It's so bad. <laughs> Although it's, so I'll say this other point. You know, when yeah. I talk to my students, I always say we. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking about slavery, I talk about what we did. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking about the Native American genocide, I'm talking about what we did. Now, having said that, my mother came here in 1974. We weren't here for any of that. Yeah. But I benefit from it. Mm -hmm. I am a professor at a amazing institution. All these students are there. I'm like, this was native land. And Mm -hmm. the only reason we are here having this conversation is because we killed them. We did that. And until we can all acknowledge our own history as opposed to saying oh that's what they did or I don't want to think about that and I'm not that person so why Mm -hmm. are you holding me against it I'm like or holding it against me the truth is we benefit from it so we need to call it out Mm -hmm. Um, and I make a point to say that I think I have a unique privilege you know as being not white so when I say Mm -hmm. we right like it makes us stop and think even more. It makes a statement, right. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's really interesting because I think that kind of brings us back into this this story with Toby and the veterans group and the Smithsonian, right? Right. Because we have some ugly history there, you know, that the Smithsonian is trying to put up uh, these propaganda posters that were, you know, were very ugly and and look at it, you know, um, honestly about kind of like the racist tropes that we engaged in with our American propaganda, you know, Um, and and so Toby, they never show them. They never show no. them. So again, it's, I feel this. We is talk thing. about it, but we don't see it. Right. Same mm-hmm. thing with CJ, right? That, right. and we could talk about um, regulation of the time and whether, what they would allow to show and what we then have to talk about and we can't mm-hmm. show yeah. um, from standards and practices making a choice. Mm-hmm. But again, we never get to see the propaganda posters. We yeah. never get to appreciate the history for ourselves as viewers. Instead, mm-hmm. you know, we're asked to be outraged through the experiences of these people. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we are only ever empathizing with their sadness. We are not empathizing or understanding the history that brought us to that sadness. Exactly, exactly. Well, and I found it kind of interesting because we get to this point with Toby where he's he's deciding which side to come down on, and he comes down on the side of the veterans. What's going on with the Smithsonian? It'll be fine, sir. Where are you leading them? Not to turn a blind eye toward the dark periods in our history, for sure, but I think there's a time and place for that, and this isn't it. You're changing. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. A very, very little bit. Did you agree with him on that? Um, there is a time and place for it, and this is it. Yeah, that's right. my, that's how I, I, I mean, I, I, that's my statement. Um, when is the time and place, if not during the, the exhibit that is talking about this history, like, and especially at the Smithsonian, yeah. you know? Um, so I found that to be a little bit odd, especially because the character of Toby typically is so, is so strongly wed to his ideals. Like he will make everybody uncomfortable he will yell at the president like he is never quiet he never sits down and shuts up and there's actually a point in in this episode where the smithsonian people say well i'm really surprised to hear that particularly from you because he's not that kind of guy like he's the kind of guy that says yeah we got to face it we got to look at it you know um i also agree with the point that the president is speaking therefore we need to have a more nuanced conversation yeah i appreciate Mm -hmm. that as well Mm -hmm. but then i would argue that it should be written into the president's speech addressing this and how it hurts 
America, how mm-hmm. it hurts our veterans, how it hurts our victims, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a way of addressing it that again, they choose not to address it, that it's like, oh, it's either going to be there or it's not going to be there. Right. Yeah. Instead of finding a way to talk about it. Exactly. Because the thing is, when you censor that stuff, we shut down the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, to me, you know, and this is something that I teach my students is that it's not that I want every piece of media to be absolutely flawless in its addressing of any of these social issues. Like, you know, be honest. Let's tell the truth. You know, let's see what's really out there. But what's important is that we have the discussion about it. The discussion is actually the thing. Like a a particular piece of media, a particular piece of storytelling can be flawed in as many ways as it needs to be flawed. And that's okay. I don't mind the flaws. I mind when we don't talk about it, when we accept it, we we like fail to reject the premise, you know? Yeah. So then um, this is my opinion on that, especially when we come Uh to flawed media is that, in my opinion, outrage should be inspiring. Uh, And if you are upset by the lack of discussion in a given piece of content, that should only inspire you to make more content. And I've been really embracing this, especially with the recent conversations around the new uh, Ridley Showtime show, Gorilla, uh, with Idris Elba, and they cast... Well, the story is supposed to follow... It's inspired by this South Asian woman in England, so it's about, you know, black rights in England, Mm -hmm. um, concurrently with American civil rights, for the most part. Mm -hmm. I think it's 74 or something. Um, And there was a South Asian woman um, at the time who was very active, Ridley has said that he is in an interracial relationship and therefore that's why he wanted to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And everybody's up in arms because they feel, or excuse me, some people are up in arms because they feel that he is erasing the role of black women in uh, this movement. And Mm -hmm. there, there's like one female, one black woman character with a speaking role and you know, she's a snitch. She's not Mm -hmm. an activist. Um, But again, I, I, Hold him to the fire. I am all about it. You can say whatever you want, but I need you to then go out and write a script to be better than this one and to right. tell whatever mm-hmm. story you want to tell because we live in a world now where media is effectively infinite. Mm-hmm. You could write, you could shoot your own TV show with your iPhone, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that would bring a unique style and it wouldn't be bad because you shot it with your iPhone. Right. But instead, we often just stop at the anger. Right. Mm-hmm. We stop at that frustration and we yell at other people. But if you're mad that somebody isn't telling your story, then tell your friends. Go story. out and tell your story. Yeah, because the accessibility to an audience is greater than it has ever, ever been. And people exactly. are able to tell their own stories, which I think is really good. But the thing is, like, I think it's our responsibility to have a discussion about it. Like yeah. whatever the problems are with any particular piece of story. Otherwise, it's make your story uh, right. different from the last one. Right. And it's when we don't have the discussions. It's when we say, no, that's all right. You know, this is okay. Like, we're just going to accept it. So, you know, one of the things that I do appreciate about Aaron Sorkin is that while he may get it wrong a lot, and he does, like he gets some stuff, he's amazing in some ways. Like, I'm a huge Sorkin fan. I love him, but he is complicated, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, but the fact that we, when we have the discussion, we look at it and we say, okay, well, that's not right. You know, like, that's the important thing is that we always, always, always have the discussion and keep that discussion open. Right. Um, And then 
And because what that does is as we have that discussion and the people coming up now, like because you're having this discussion with your students now, they're going to go out and create media that represents better, that right. does a better job, you know, and, and in essence tells a better story because the better you are at talking about humans, the better your storytelling is going to be. And the more honest and truthful, you know, you can be talking about human people who are humans first before they are anything else. Mm-hmm. That storytelling is going to be better. Right. So, um, so I think that that's like, you know, like I'm the self-righteous indignation feels really great. The outrage is a drug and people get very addicted to the outrage because when I'm outraged about something, I know I'm a good person because look how much I care about these brown women in Kumar, right? Right. You know, like I know that I'm a good person because I'm outraged, but that outrage in and of itself is not an end. It doesn't do anything. It's just outrage and it just makes you feel superior, you know, but being able to take action, being able to do whatever you can do in whatever realm you do it, you know, for me, it's media criticism, but for somebody else, it's going to be something else to be able to take action based on that and to stop like condemning people like, yeah, somebody did this piece of media and maybe they screwed this one thing up, but next time maybe they'll do better, right. you know, and appreciating what people do well alongside the things that maybe they didn't get so right. But it doesn't mean that they're useless human beings who are just sexist and racist and all these horrible things. You know, I think that when we start throwing out those, those accusations, we shut down the conversation. We we shut down the complexity that we can get to by sort of opening it up and acknowledging, just acknowledging, you know, what it is that's happening there. Right. And if I could make a suggestion for your future uh, episodes, yes. Yes. it would be, I would ask you, you know, what would you change about this script? So mm-hmm. with my students, uh, when they write their emails, they, I grade them. I'm actually writing this up for media shift at the moment. So I can, mm-hmm. if it's posted, I can send it to you to add it as a supplemental link. But yeah. um it's graded on their ability to describe the artifact. Cause you know, once you start editing, you, you know, five, 10, 50 hours into it, you no longer see that dog peeing in the exactly. corner. Right. <laughs> yes. And then you show it and they're like, why is that dog peeing in the corner? You're like, mm-hmm. there's a dog. Um, so first to describe the artifact, what is objectively happening? Cause if we mm-hmm. can't all agree on the facts, then we yeah. can't have a conversation. But then secondly, um, <clears throat> to analyze and interpret it. So basically, you know, why is this a problem? How does this connect to history? What are Mm -hmm. the trends? You know, what have you learned in this class that make you think more deeply about that? But then the last Mm -hmm. point is engagement to Mm -hmm. suggest a change because being able Uh to complain about something is not demonstrating your value. Being able Mm -hmm. to fix a problem is demonstrating your value. So they all have to come up with some little change that can be made to the artifact or doing another episode oh, or that's great. commercial, mm-hmm. like literally coming up with ideas. Mm-hmm. So in this one, the one I was thinking about, especially I've got like four threads coming into one thought, uh, the world mm-hmm. that we're currently in, you know, it just, it, I feel so helpless, right? I feel like mm-hmm. the, right. the people are suffering. And once you become aware of it, I'm outraged and I don't know what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I feel like I'm really lucky to be able to talk to students and shape young minds and help them give words to their emotions. And then they will go out and they will be better media makers. And that is how I am changing the world. Good. Great. Yeah. Done. Mm-hmm. Having said that this semester, I'm on sabbatical, so I'm not doing that. So I've pretty mm-hmm. much decided to put my money where my mouth is. And I just set up all these <laughs> donations to like three or four orgs that I believe in mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm out. (laughs) I can't. And so this, I have like four points. Okay. I can't 
give right now because I'm mm-hmm. trying to do my own book, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, like I need to focus on me. Um, mm-hmm. I think today I posted hashtag Trump made me more isolationist, right? Uh-huh. That I'm just kind of, I got to do me. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, being able to affect change is essential. And my work, again, looks at how we use media to affirm our identities. I would say Mm -hmm. that this entire podcast is just that, like, Mm -hmm. you are using media to envision and discuss a past world, a current world, a fictional world, a real world, Mm -hmm. um, as a way of affirming, you know, that we can still have robust conversations, we don't need to be completely swayed by like, the crappy hypocritical rhetoric that comes down from on high. Mm -hmm. So that's a really key example as well. So as I think about what I would change in this episode, Mm -hmm. I would figure out a way for CJ to do something, right? So like she doesn't donate to Kumar. She doesn't, she could, and I know that there's probably donation issues when you work in the White House. So, sure. but stick mm-hmm. with me. I, I don't mm-hmm. know the details, but. Right, but lawyer, there's some action yeah, that she can take. That yeah. she can take. So she could donate. She could donate her time to a refugee um, mm-hmm. center. She could leak the story, yeah. you know, and start mm-hmm. the conversation outside. But none of that happens. We just watch her get angry and flounder. But again, Mm -hmm. outrage should inspire. If that means going to a refugee camp and sitting with women and, you know, helping them write a letter to their daughter who's still overseas, Mm -hmm. right? We don't see her do anything. We don't even see her take the opportunity to think about doing anything. And I think that that's a key problem that to tie back. Being nice is more important than being empathetic. And being nice Mm -hmm. in this case means following orders from your boss, right? Yeah. But if you're empathetic and you're upset that these women need help, then give them the friggin' help. Then you know, do you what don't... help you can, right? Exactly. Yeah. If you what can't can... do everything you want to do, do what you can. Now, admittedly, mm-hmm. when you work at the White House and what you can do is yell at the president for his poor human rights, you're yeah. pretty high up there. Yeah. But yeah. if that's not working, what else do you do? You don't just mm-hmm. say, okay, well, I guess me yelling at the president didn't work and talking snarky comments to these veterans didn't work. And, you know, yelling at this woman of color who's in the NSA didn't work. So I guess I'll just toe the line. I no. guess I'll just do it. Right. Yeah, Go do something else. Leave the White House. Demonstrate to us that you have a life mm-hmm. outside of this office. Right. Because uh, I'm sure they bring in her character, as do all procedurals. Um, mm-hmm. They take them out of the workplace. But this is her work family. Right. Yeah. So show us who you are as a person. Go volunteer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is probably what I would change with this episode is if we just see her walking in like one shot of her walking in to a woman's refugee center. Mm-hmm. And seeing that she's giving her time, I feel right. like a lot of the problems that I have with this episode emotionally would have been resolved with literally four seconds of with of, just a little something. A little yeah, something. right. No, I can definitely understand that. One of the things, though, about this episode that I found really weird, we have like this series of storylines where nothing is resolved in any of them. At the end of the episode, I felt so frustrated. And because every single storyline, nothing was really resolved. 
you know, nothing like we, we see that Toby comes down on the side of the veterans, but we never see him acknowledging with the Smithsonian that they're going to remove it from the thing. We don't talk about like whether Bartlett is going to say anything during his, his uh, speech. We have um, uh, like Bartlett being completely unhelpful in every, um, every storyline that he engages with. Uh, he comes to Charlie, Charlie's studying for his modern American history final. And the president starts talking to him about the Visigoths. Right. And giving him this like German book. Sam comes to uh, Bartlett about the seatbelt laws. And, you know, he goes on this moderate, moderately like libertarian speech and does absolutely nothing to help Sam with that discussion. Toby asks about the wheelchair for the veteran. And this is why I thought it was deliberate, because in this moment, we actually look it straight in the eye um, because Toby comes in and says this guy needs a wheelchair. And Bartlett tells him the story about, you know, red tape and where red tape came from and gives him all this history right and then he says what's, what's next, next to charlie what you know sir that story about red tape and medicaid was interesting but what nothing i'm sorry you've got economic advisors in the roosevelt it was interesting but what but the man just wanted a wheelchair you know and all of a sudden bartlett wakes up and he's like yeah you know i'll make a phone call but it feels to me almost deliberate i mean we have this whole mad cow thing going on on the side too you know yeah with trying to figure out whether they should talk to people about it. And CJ has this really wonderful speech that she gives. What I meant was that the public will not forgive a president who withheld information that could have helped them or save lives. Second, in a crisis, people need to feel like soldiers, not victims. Third, information breeds confidence. Silence breeds fear. That's my argument she's got all these really great points that she's making, you know, they're, when they're talking about that. And they do decide on this lower level to release the information about the mad cow. But once again, you know, Bartlett is completely, you know, not helpful during any of this stuff. And we don't really resolve the mad cow thing. We got a presumptive positive. We never find out. We have all this, like these apocalyptic, you know, um, ideas about what's going to happen if it ends up being a mad cow thing. And apparently never happens because we never, we never revisit that so apparently it's all fine right but they go through this whole thing and nothing in there is resolved we don't even find out if the positive came back and it was negative after all which i guess it was because we never hear about this and obviously if it was mad cow it would be this completely apocalyptic you know scenario that leo and bartlett have have set out so we have all of these stories in this episode that feel to me because I don't know that it can be a coincidence that nothing's resolved. Nothing is answered. We get nothing out of anything. And at the end of the episode, I'm left feeling drained and tired and frustrated, you know, and I feel like that must be deliberately what they were going for in this episode because it happens in every single storyline, one after the other, nothing's resolved. Right. Yeah, I don't have any answer for you on that one. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, although, interestingly enough, you know, when you have a serial drama, especially sitcoms mm -hmm. are different, you know, you want to get people to tune into next week. Like, that's, yeah. that's part of the is the cliffhangers. And they just mm -hmm. give you all these cliffhangers, but there's no resolution, which yeah. I would argue is probably antithetical to all things uh, television writing related. But yes. at the same point... This was a one-off, right? We mm -hmm. got all the women on the staff. We're going to talk mm -hmm. about all these women's issues. We're going to put them all in here. We're going to start all these stories, and we're not going to finish them because this wasn't really an episode that anybody wanted to write. 
Yeah. Because we don't need to empathize. We just need to be nice. And you know what being nice is? Putting women on our writing, giving women a writing credit. Yeah. So I would argue that your issues with the narrative of the um, of this episode are represented and much deeper in the structure of the creation of this episode. So mm-hmm. not the script, not not the actual content we see, but rather the entire production to get this content. Yeah. No, so why I find would they that bother to finish any of these stories if we were just doing this women's episode? I'm surprised they didn't do it during Women's History Month. Like <laughs> we were they just might have throwing some black this out. episode where they bring in all these black stars and do it during Black History Month and call it a day. I wouldn't expect to see right. is this, storylines resolved Right. Is this the either. Toby apology? Yeah. You know, is this the, hey, look, gar- girls, we gave you an episode. We talked about your issues. We didn't resolve anything. I put my hand over my heart. we made it as uncomfortable. Right. I put my hand over my heart and I forgive you. I yeah. forgive you for being an irrational woman. So, yeah, it does kind of feel like that. But I have to say, though, it was a great conversation. And I'm so glad that you could hang out with me for this because I really enjoyed hearing you talk about this. It's oh, really yeah. Great. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of it. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. All right. So that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it's time to step away from our quirky balloon animal menagerie and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this little break has given you something other than a total sense of frustration and helplessness because that's not going to get done what needs to get done. To combat the impulse to curl up into the fetal position around a bag of Cheetos and a bottle of wine, here are some words from American activist Cynthia McKinney. We are way more powerful when we turn to each other and not on each other, when we celebrate our diversity and together tear down the mighty walls of injustice. So thank you so much, Dr. LaPree, for hanging out with me this week. It was so great. And I just I will talk to you about anything you want, anytime you want. You tell me what podcast you want. I'll produce it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, let's do a Fast and Furious one. We can watch it. You know, and actually, it would be really fun if, to do it just like as a conversation, uh, yeah. if, especially if you've never seen them. Right. So oh, right. We can have like fresh eyes on Fast and Furious, fresh eyes. Ooh, that's a good title. That'd be so good. Okay. We are going to talk about that off mic, but we definitely are. So thank you so much. I'll be back next week with Kevin Flynn of the Crime Writers On podcast and our thoughts on episode eight of season five, Shutdown, in which Republicans threaten to shut down the government if the president doesn't capitulate to their demands on budget resolution. Now, typically at the end of the show, I pull an inspirational bit from the episode we watched so that we can end on a high note. But this This episode wasn't exactly full of inspiration, which is okay. It is not the job of fiction to always inspire, but still it left me in a bit of a pinch. So I'm stealing something from episode five of season one, the crackpots and these women enjoy. What would be the next thing that challenges us, Toby? That makes us go farther and work harder. You know that when smallpox was eradicated, it was considered the single greatest humanitarian achievement of this century. Surely we can do it again, as we did in a time when our eyes look towards the heavens. And with outstretched fingers, we touch the face of God. Here's to absent friends and the ones that are here now. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act. 